Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're going to give you an hour of science. We've got a bucket load of guests uh, coming on the show today from all over the place. And uh, I've got Dr. Ailey in the studio with me. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How, How are you on this pleasant Sunday morning? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Although I have to say I was a bit disappointed when it started uh, drizzling on the way in. I thought, oh, we're going to have another nice day, but no. Oh, I needed to today. drizzle a little bit because I'm planning on some snow activities in the coming days. Yes. We need some snow. Yeah, a bit colder just, though would be better. Yeah, we want colder. The, the, the rain without the... We need well, the, the snow without the rain. <laughs> we we need all of it. It's all going to happen, but it will, hopefully, and we'll be good. Uh, folks, uh, we're going to reverse the show today. Normally, we do news first, but uh, Dr. Ailey and I have decided to reverse it, partly because we have our first guest on the line already. Professor Justine Smith is a strategic professor in eye and vision health at Flinders University. Justine, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you very well, guys. Excellent. It is great to have you on the show. And, of course, we were chatting just before, and I realised that you trained my ophthalmologist, the great Linda Lim, here in Melbourne. Yeah, she's outstanding, and you're very lucky to have her looking after you. <laughs> I agree. It's, uh, it's one of those things where if you have any sort of inflammation in your eye, um, you want someone who really knows their stuff because that stuff – is it is it a part of the body where things just move faster, Justine, or is that just my imagination? Oh, so the eye is special. It has its own immune system. Our immune system is what helps us fight things, fight infections, fight anything that's foreign that might be of danger to our body. Mm. And the eye has its own special system because if you have too much fighting going on inside the eye, it can damage the eye tissues. Right. So the eye actually tries to dampen inflammation um, and that's to protect itself. But it does have the effect that it, it can lend itself to some unusual conditions, including the one we're going to be speaking about a little yeah. bit later, Shane. In, indeed. And just before we go on to that, uh, just give us a feel for, because, uh, well, I guess what I'm asking here is the eye has so many components to it and there's sort of parts that are external and parts that are internal. Is that sort of inflammatory response and special immune capabilities, is it different in different parts of the eye or is it the same sort of all the way through? Well, I guess the principle is the same the, all the way through, but, but yes, you're right. Different compartments have somewhat different mechanisms, um, perhaps different molecules that are involved, uh, different structures, but, uh, but the general principle is the same, that the eye's trying to limit inflammation, which can cause you know, damage in itself, mm. while also trying to fight back so it's it's a real delicate balance mm, interesting and what we were going to talk about today and this is what sort of just jumped out at me when i when i saw the press release come out from flinders this week was the work you've been doing on ebola and how the eye actually is a as a location where where we find this particular very nasty virus G give us an idea of of how that works because i I, I'm sort of a, the view that most people would probably think more of Ebola as something that attacks all the organs in the main sort of area of our body, but it's something that sort of has a good little shelter there in, in the eye as well. Yeah, 
so basically when you get infected with Ebola virus, uh, many people go on to develop this really severe disease, which we call, um, you know, understandably, Ebola virus disease. Mm-hmm. And it starts as a bit of a flu and then, it can, and then it goes on to a very serious illness where you get a lot of, um, you get really nasty symptoms, diarrhea, bleeding, and, and you know, and many people um, succumb to that. So the particular virus that causes this, um, it, it, it's really a nasty one and, and the fatality rate's 70 to 90%, yep. right? However, some people do survive and also with medical care, that um, percentage goes up. And if you survive the infection, what we've come to learn is that many of the people um, carry the virus in certain parts of their body after they've recovered. So they, you know, for all intents and purposes, they've recovered from the disease. We call them an Ebola survivor, but they can go on and have weird um, disease or weird conditions in their body. And it's largely related to the ability of this virus to persist. And one of the places that this virus persists, not indefinitely, but definitely, but for some time is inside the eye. And it probably relates to the special immune system of the eye. And so down the track, people who've survived Ebola can get a serious inflammation in the eye, which is actually often blinding, and it's related to persistence of live infectious virus inside the eye. Right. It's it's phenomenal to me that you can have something like a virus like Ebola and it just it just hangs in the eye. You know, it doesn't spread back into the body, it just kind of I'm not sure if the word is right to say it retreats to the eye, but that's that's a location where it's then able to sort of maintain a certain integrity or a certain number of of um, you know copies of itself uh, that, that are sustainable. Is is that do we understand why that happens? Well, um, well, it it probably is the fact that you know it, it the eye is probably not as good at getting rid of it, so it. it it almost certainly gets in during the acute infection and then it stays there. It does persist in a couple of other places. It can persist around the brain and it also can persist for men in the, um, in the general organs and can, can actually be picked up in semen. And there have been um, very unfortunate cases where somebody, a male has recovered from the illness but gone on to pass the infection onto their partner sexually. Mm. So, so it's not just related to the eye and there is the potential for it to still be passed on and really potentially cause a relapse. But, um, but yeah, in the eye, it, it persists not indefinitely. So um, there are guidelines around operating on a person's eye after they've survived Ebola. If you wait for a certain number of months, it probably ultimately goes away and then it's it's safer to do the surgery yeah interesting now you in particular have been working on trying to find out which cells in particular in the eye are sort of i guess most susceptible to to the virus and ones where this sort of infection shows up to the greatest extent how do you go about that is this in animal models that is in you know people's eyes that were deceased how, how does how does that work so so the team that i'm part of at flinders specialises in doing research that uses human eye cells and eye tissues. Um, so we, we um, tend not to do animal research and we also um, tend not to work with samples that have come from patients with disease. Uh, we um, have, are very fortunate to receive gifts from the eye bank 
And from those gifts, we isolate different cells from inside the eye, the human eye, and then we work with those cells to try and understand disease mechanisms. And so in this work, we isolated two different cell types, cells that are known to be important in the way the eye responds to an infection. But one group of the cells were from the front of the eye and one group of cells were from the back of the eye. Um, so for, you know, the, probably the names are not important, but the first group are the iris pigment epithelial cells from the front of the eye and the other group are the retinal pigment epithelial cells from the back of the eye. Hmm. And presumably the, the ones at the back of the eye are the most crucial in terms of our vision. Have I got that correct? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I love the back of the eye, so I think the retina is really important. But if you ask other researchers who work on the front of the eye, they would say that their part <laughs> of the eye is, in, is the most important. So I think the, bottom, <laughs> the, the message <laughs> is that all the bits need to be functioning well. But you are right. Um, the retinal tissue in at the back of the eye is is the nerve tissue. It's like mm. the film in a camera, and if that is damaged, it it uh, it, it means that the there's there's no potential for vision in those areas that are severely damaged mm. so it, it is quite important mm. so justin given we know this now about the, the sort of back of the eye and the importance of those retinal tissues with regards to these infections and, and where that infection you know tends to you know focus its its attack in some ways what does that mean in terms of treatment of people who you know, do end up with Ebola. I mean, as you said, with, with good medical care, you know, the, the survival rate's much higher than we, we often see. And presumably the, the chance of blindness or damage to the eye is pretty substantial in anyone who has Ebola. So what, what does knowing this do for us helping those individuals? Yeah, so I guess I'd just take one step back and say that, that there's not a lot of work being done to date on this condition. It's relatively recently recognised. And some of the research in the area is simply trying to understand how it all happens. Yeah. So, so part of what drives us is that. However, you're absolutely right. And I'm an eye doctor myself. And I always like the research that we do to have some implication for the patient and, and treatment and management. So look, the, um, the issue with uveitis or this inflammation inside the eye that occurs, after, it occurs in Ebola survivors is it's really nasty and it often leads to vision loss, um, but it comes on some time down the track. Now, in between, in many of these patients, there are little scars in the back of the eye that suggest these cells that we've homed in on are important. And that was one of the reasons that we, we really were interested in these cells. Um, there are some really... Are nice imaging techniques now, not all that expensive, but they allow you to kind of get an idea if those cells are involved in inflammation before it's actually really obvious in the eye of the patient. So if we know now that these cells are really key, um, there are imaging techniques you could use to sort of pick that up early before the person's actually having a full-blown attack of inflammation and know that that person's more likely to be susceptible and, um, and follow that person more carefully. You know, once you start developing inflammation in the eye, there are things that can be done about it. The problem mm. comes if it's left for a long time and you don't, the doctor doesn't see it until it's really, really aggressive. It's then much harder to treat. Yeah, interesting stuff. Well, um, 
Justin, great talking to you. Uh, years ago, I had this dream of putting an ophthalmoscope in every cardiac ward in every hospital in the country and just start gathering data um, because the eye is just such an incredible vehicle for, for looking at the vascular structure of the body directly um, in ways that we can't you know, do normally. I think it's, it's just fascinating to, to see and hear about um, some of these things with illnesses like Ebola and, and you know, anything else that affects us. Uh, there's so much going on there that we haven't really, you know, talked about. We could talk about this all day. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo and good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. Folks, that was Professor Justine Smith, Strategic Professor in eye, of Eye and Vision Health at Flinders University. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about robotics. Cool stuff. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Chow Chen. He is the course director of robotics and mechatronics engineering in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Monash University. Welcome, Chow. How are you? Good morning, Dr. Shen. Thank you for having me. It is great having you in here. You work in one of the coolest areas. I, I think back to my undergraduate time and we didn't get to do robotics. I mean, the, the students must love coming through and doing robotics stuff. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, we can see the dramatic increase of student numbers in our discipline of robotics and mechatronics. Yeah. Yeah. And I think are we passed the time when people were sort of afraid of robotics taking all our jobs. Do people come through now and just think this is fantastic for enhancing the things that we can do? Yeah. Um, so regarding the robotics technology, I my personal view is that uh, nothing to fear about it. The reason is that uh, robots typ typically are designed to handle um, dangerous and, mm. and uh, repeatable and uh, tedious jobs for humans. So it can potentially, uh, can definitely and free people from these type of jobs and to focus on more creative tasks. Yeah, now that sounds good. Um, one of the things that you're working on is uh, the acronym's MARS, but it's the Monash Apple Retrieving System. Yeah. So this is something, I mean, if I just think about this, I reach up and I pick an apple from an orchard tree. For a human being, this is a simple task. Very simple. But, and in fact, if you actually think about what's involved in doing that for a moment, you realize that it's, it's amazing we can do that. Yes. But in robotics, that seems like an incredibly complex task to a, to do it, B, to not damage the fruit. Yes, definitely. And uh, so let, let's first look at the robot in a factory at the moment. So robots are typically designed and uh, in the factory setup or standard so that it know where to start, mm. where to pick, where to place. Yep. And the trajectory is uh, well defined and in repeating way. However, in orchard, it's completely different. No two apples are same. And they are different in size, color, and orientation, and uh, the surrounding obstacles are completely different. Mm -hmm. So you need to identify all this information in real time, and then tell the controller to send the robotic gripper to reach the fruit in the correct way, and then grasp and twist and remove it. Yeah. So, yeah, very... It's, it's quite an interesting problem. Yeah, and presumably there's two parts to that. There's the, the software coding, which is incredibly complicated, but also just the, the mechanical orientation of the robotics that are used to do the job. Yes, exactly. And uh, we, 
uh, currently decouple our entire system into three subsystems, and one is, uh, one is vision, and one is the robotic arm and central control, and another one is gripper. So regarding the vision, so we require um, very sophisticated and deep learning algorithm to handle the environment, to handle the information, to identify and locate the fruit. And then we need to control the robotic arm in such a way that it uh, avoids all the collision with the obstacles uh, mm. surrounding it. And finally, we need to design a very and sophisticated robotic gripper which can interact with the fruit and also potentially branch and leaves and to remove the fruit and safely uh, undamaged from the tree. Yeah. Now, I'm thinking, you know, I've got my leather out. I'm under the tree. I put my leather up in the right spot. I can probably pick about five apples a minute. Then I've got to move it, got to put them back down. How? I mean, how does this compare to a human being? Is it, um, is it faster? Is it effective? Yeah, and uh, compared to uh, human pickers, um, the robot, the current robot is not faster. Um, so we can, uh, our, our, our robot can pick up uh, up to eight apples per minute. A uh, human picker um, can averagely pick um, probably one apple per uh, using two seconds. Mm. So we are probably and two to three times slower than human picker. Um, but there's uh, some differences. Uh, one is that uh, the human picker typically have a big bag and uh, in front of their chest. Yep. And so that means the traveling distance and from the fruit to the collector is much shorter. But the robotic arm is actually takes the fruit from the tree and moving all the way and to some uh, basket and locate it underneath. So the trajectory mm. is longer. And this can be improved. And uh, from another point of view is that the robot can typically work longer and especially at the night time. Yeah, I was going to ask you that whether we could do. Ailey's got the same question. Like, yeah, we, exactly. That was going to be my question. I you mean, you know, it night. might be slower, but you can do this twenty-four hours a day, right? And, and I was actually going to get tired. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was going to ask how that goes with the the vision yeah. at night. I mean, is this a matter of just putting lights up and you get the same response, or you know, are you able to? Um, I would imagine trying to distinguish that with your learning al algorithms at nighttime versus daytime. You've got different backgrounds, different reflection. Off, off various parts of the tree and whatnot would be quite different. Yes, yes, and this is a very good question. So according to our experiment, we find that uh, the robot work even better at night time uh, because during daytime and the night variation is dramatic and from morning to moon to, to noon and uh, to uh, late afternoon. Uh, however, and at night time, we put the structure night on the tree so the night condition is very consistent so the vision works much better mm. now apples you know super easy right <laughs> not so much what's next i mean you get to the point where you can pick things like strawberries or other far more delicate sort of fruits is that is that where it's heading yes exactly and uh, we this is our vision and uh, we want to extend the fruit and from apple to pear to orange and to strawberry and in the future. So uh, regarding picking different fruit, and we need to um, train our vision system and differently, and also we need to design a more um, soft gripper and to handle and soft fruits. Mm. Um, so it is in the pipeline.
Yep. No, cool stuff. Now, the other thing that you guys are doing there down at Monash, which is, um, you know, look, I love fruit. I mean, most of us love fruit, but Mars and the Moon. Now yes. we're talking. Um, Mars you- is in the planet now, right? Not Mars is in the apple. Very true, very true. Um, but you, you've been part of um, supervising this undergraduate team that I understand came second place in one of the Mars Desert Research um, program or competitions this year. Yes. Um, tell us a bit about that. Yes, and uh, I'm extremely and uh, proud about our team's achievement. So this team was established uh, in 2017 with only, uh, starting with only four student members. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is kind of a, a long journey to reach this point. Um, so in uh, the competition happened uh, in the uh, Mass Desert Research Station in Utah uh, every year. Uh, so our team went there and uh, so they uh, participated all the and tasks such like extreme retrieval and uh, delivery task and science task and aut- autonomous operation task, uh, equipment service task. So in the end, and uh, they scored second. Yeah. So this is a ro- this is a rover, a small vehicle that has to do all of these things. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And uh, so this uh, is uh, our designed and uh, mass rover. So it has a, a mobile base and with robotic arm mounted on top of it. So at the tip of the robotic arm, there is a gripper to do the tasks. Um, so there is a base station, um, a group of uh, student members and sitting there to watch the screen and operate the joystick, remotely control the robotic uh, mobile base and uh, robotic arm and gripper to finish all the tasks. That's cool stuff. So, I mean, are we at a bit of an advantage here? Because uh, the Australian desert, I know, is, is used a lot for uh, Mars activities, Mars-like activities. Are you able to practice in the field and take your robots out there to, to see how they work under similar kind of conditions that you might find in Utah? Potentially, potentially. This is something we're looking forward to. Yeah, there's just some areas out past Ballarat. Yeah. <laughs> not this year, but normally. No, but normally, yeah, yeah it's pretty, pretty yeah. rough and ready. Yep. You could, you could yep. do it there. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is uh, there are now more than 90 students involved in this project just a few years later. Yes. How do you coordinate, Chow, 90 students all wanting to drive the rover? <laughs> um, yes, and uh, so um, we u- utilise a uh, system approach and to... Uh, develop the project and also structure the team. So, for example, uh, we have the the chassis team, we have the arm team, we have the science team, mm-hmm. software team, intellectual team, and operation team, uh, communication team, etc. So, all these students and uh, uh, are assigned at least and to one team to work on specific tasks. And e- in each subsystem and in each sub team, and they have and also number of uh, uh, and uh, in different tasks, different modules to focus on. So um, by doing that and system and our students working very well and uh, hmm. collectively. Yeah, that's great. Now, I know uh, like NASA and the ESA all often have competitions and various things with regards to how they deploy things on the moon and Mars. And they even recently, actually, they announced the three companies being asked to look at um, nuclear fission uh, power sources for the moon. I was going to put in an application, but the school <laughs> drop-offs 
got in the way time-wise. Um, what's what's the deal with the robotic rovers that you're working on? Is there a, a hope that one day they might be chosen or utilised at some stage in you know, Mars and Moon missions? Yes, and thank you for this question. So currently our team, uh, Monash Nobrov team, and uh, it's participating in um, a blazer program uh, for Australian Space and uh, 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 agency. So this program is uh, uh, it's aiming to send the rover to moon and then to Mars. Mm. So our team currently participates in a consortium proposal and on this. So we're waiting for the result at the moment. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Chow Chen, thanks so much for coming and talking to us today on Einstein and Gogo. I had no idea how much robotics was going on down there at Monash. It's fantastic to hear that there's the undergraduate programs and all these exciting things as well. So I suspect you're going to be overloaded with students uh, <laughs> over the coming years because it is such a, an incredible growth area. And yes. I think we're, we're realizing more and more that... You know, we can do things that in the past were not available in robotics. And I think the more, you know, anyone listening at the moment, just think about the complexity of just picking a single apple in a remote, you know, in a remote setting with, you know, without a human hand. It is it is tough stuff and not, you know, I, I have an image of an apple coming out that's more like apple juice. <laughs> that would be my version. But, you know, being able to do it undamaged and, you know, quite a few an hour, uh, quite a few a minute, sorry, is um, is extraordinary. Um, Chow, good luck with the ongoing work and good luck with the team and uh, all the Mars Rover stuff. It would be great to see a, a group coming out of Monash and being part of that exploration. So thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Shin. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements. And when we come back, we'll be speaking to another guest from Monash University, actually. They're overtaking the studio today. All good stuff. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to a science show. Einstein and Gogo. <laughs> Just that little old thing that's Give been on for to... however many years now, you know. <laughs> Give me a moment to change the channel. <laughs> thought this was a religious broadcast. You are wrong. Uh, now, in the studio with us now is Yolanda Mitchell from Monash University. Good morning, Yolanda. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Good to be on. It's great to have you on. You're partway through your PhD. How are you doing? Oh, you're hanging in there. Second yeah. year. Sec- I always call Sec- second year the, you oh. know, the year of hell. Yeah, the existential crisis year. That's what it is. <laughs> PhD blues. Yeah, yeah it's where yes, you realise yeah. you've wasted a fair amount of your life and the end doesn't seem to take... No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah let's, not, let's not go there. So, it's all good, it's all good. Um, but you're working in this area which I, I find... You know, I've interacted with this a lot. I think most people have during their lives with family members or whatever. This whole area of steroids or corticosteroids and the use of them to treat anti-inflammatory conditions. Let's... Let's just throw a few of these conditions out there first. I mean, what sort of um, anti-inflammatories would we, or, or what sort of diseases and conditions would we throw anti-inflammatories at? Yeah, so steroids are used, or glucocorticoids, as we call them, um, are used in all areas of medicine, basically from the acute treatment of uh, asthma exacerbations, mm-hmm. for example, to chronic inflammation such as you have in conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus which is uh, what we focus on in particular Mm -hmm. but yeah basically steroids are the mainstay of treatment for inflammation because no other agent we have is as effective at treating all different parts of the inflammatory response. Do, do we have a large range of steroids? I know they're, they're from you know started around the 50s or whatever like yeah. are we talking about a, a lot of different 
types of steroid medications these days or is it kind of like some of our antibiotics where we're still using the same old ones and you know yeah so we do have a few different formulations whether people want to take them orally or whether you take them intravenous intravenously um but yeah basically we have a few gold standard ones that, which have stayed around for a long time and as you say they've been around since their discovery in the 1950s and since then we just haven't found an agent as effective at treating mm. inflammation. Now let's talk about what the steroid medications do when they enter your body because I, so my you know, simple physics guy brain says they shut down my immune system but what, what's actually happening you know what what's going on that makes them so effective? Yeah, so that's a, a good way to think of it. Basically, the um, steroids enter our cells. So almost most of the cells in our body express the receptor, which the steroids bind to. Um, and they enter the cells and bind to the DNA of our cells. And that's how they um, have such broad-ranging and potent effects because they... Um, upregulate and downregulate a whole range of thousands and thousands of genes which are involved in the immune system. So mm. that's what makes them so broadly effective. So we mean you mean by that they can turn those genes on and off so that they yeah. they sort of stop doing their job if they're causing us problems or start doing it if they're not causing us problems. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's also part of the reason why although steroids are very good at treating inflammation, they also cause a lot of side effects because mm. they have this broad effect on on turning on and off genes. Yeah. So, yeah, steroids cause a whole host of side effects, including uh, weight gain, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. And these are all conditions which are very prevalent in society at the moment. So, yeah, they make it a lot worse. Yeah, that doesn't sound good at all. And is that why typically, I mean, I've heard of people on these sort of regimens where they, they just use them for a few days to a week. Is that is that yeah. how we limit that? that damage and the side effects? Yeah, definitely. So steroids are very effective in low doses short term and typically you don't get as many of these sort of chronic chronic side effects if uh, they're used short term. But it's when they're used long term for chronic inflammation such as in arthritis, mm. which is when you get these side effects. Yeah, interesting. Now, my understanding is what you're looking at, I could be completely off base here because my, my biochemistry is weak, is that you're looking at trying to mimic the impact of the steroids and what they do in the cells without the side effects of the steroid use. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So our team uh, based at Monash Medical Centre is working on a protein which is called GILS. And GILS uh, has been worked on a lot over the past few decades and it's been found to be one of the genes which the glucocorticoids or the steroids turn on when they enter the cell and which mimics which mediates a lot of their anti-inflammatory effects but doesn't turn on those genes which cause their side effects such as the obesity and diabetes. So GILS is a good candidate for creating um, a therapy which has these good potent anti-inflammatory effects but not the same often detrimental side effects. And can we, can we just make this stuff and are we able to do that at this point? Yeah, I wish it was as simple as that. Unfortunately, <laughs> not. Just turn the handle yep. that comes out. Yeah, because yeah, gills is a, a really tiny protein and it works completely intracellularly. So it works in the cell. So it's not as simple as sort of making it and giving it to the patient. So 
our team is working on a strategy to increase gills, but without using steroids. So typically steroids increases gills, which causes anti-inflammatory effects. But our team is working on how to increase gills without using steroids and therefore uh, avoid these side mm. effects. Is there any location-specific element to the gills approach? Like, you know, when we take steroids, it hits our whole body, right? I mean, that's part of the problem is that it just hits our whole body. Is there is there a way to reduce that as well so that it's only, you know, if I have inflammation in my kidneys, you know, it just deals with that? Can we, can we do that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think what we're aiming for is a similar sort of whole body anti-inflammatory response though Mm. because we found that especially in chronic inflammatory diseases such as lupus it is the whole Whole body body. that is affected Um, although you have sort of organ specific so you have specific um, symptoms in specific organs it it is the whole body which is affected so that's what we're um, working on interesting and with things like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis which are lifelong you know mm. for those who've con- contracted them and, and predominantly women i think too yeah. So, yeah yeah um you know more likely um in women then is this this approach something that you know over the longer term would be successful or is it you know is it sort of more short-lived yeah so it's uh the aim is to create a long to- a long-term therapeutic mm. so a new drug which we could treat patients long-term to treat their inflammation so that uh, we could achieve the same anti-inflammatory effects but without these long-term side effects of steroids. Yep, very good. Now, Yolanda, normally in the media people ask, you know, when's this going to be ready? I have a new way of asking this question these days. NASA's most likely landing humans again on the moon in 2025. Are we talking pre or post the moon landing? Uh, I would say post. Very good. Yes. Yeah, I like this answer these days. And, uh, and with your PhD, completion pre or post the moon landing? Oh, that's mean. <laughs> just, just say pre. Just say pre in case uh, your supervisor's listening. Pre, yeah. <laughs> we'll good. see. You'll Michelle, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us about this. It's such a huge issue for so many people. I know, um, you know, I mean, things like rheumatoid arthritis are so painful and so debilitating for so many people in their society. And, you know, those side effects are, you know, the deal they have to do to, to get through life. And unfortunately, they can be really, you know, as bad as what you're trying to treat or worse. So uh, this would be an outstanding achievement if you guys managed to sort this out and give alternatives to those people. So thanks so much for chatting today. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Shane. Folks, we're going to take a break for some station announcements. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, welcome back, folks. Dr. Ailey and I are now going to give you some news of the week. Week, yes. Exciting. Do you want to, want to start? There's been so much going on. Oh my I didn't gosh. know where to start, actually. No, I have to news. say, I was the same. I was the same. But you know what? I saw something about jumping rivers, and I thought, that sounds fun. Jumping rivers? Jumping is rivers. it the rivers jumping or people jumping the rivers? No, no, the rivers jumping. Oh, hang on, now more. Yeah, <laughs> no, people jumping in rivers. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's, just, that's just summertime, right? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. This is something called avulsion, actually. Avulsion. Avulsion. See, so I've learned something new today. Yeah, there you a go. New word yeah. happens every week. Yeah, I know. Well, avulsion. Okay. Uh, I think I think it's used in medical terms as well. It's like some something to do with. Well, it's actually the same meaning. So in medical um, terminology, it's to do with I think. I think bones breaking and like a bone coming away, a shard of bone coming away, right? But this is the whole point is avulsion means kind of separation, right? So this is basically when you get a river that very suddenly changes its channel. 
And when I say very suddenly, you know, you think, oh, yeah, rivers are slow. Oh, you know, very suddenly might be over the course of months. No, no, no. We're talking days. Like it can jump a huge distance, sometimes kind of 100 kilometres off track in the course of a day or two. Wow. What? That's uh, (laughs) – sorry, how far? 100 kilometres or so. Yep. Oh, wow. Sometimes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so you can have a, a particular channel. And then you can have a new channel basically being formed that's like 100, like at, at some parts, its maximum distance might be, you know, 100 kilometres away from the other one. Jeez. Yeah. So basically it's this process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, jumping rivers is what I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, right, I know. Right. So imagine having a river there and yep. not the next day. So this actually can cause serious issues. You can imagine that if people are in the path of where the river decides it's going to go, yeah, you're or in the, all sorts or the little of little bunny rabbits and, yeah. and deer and stuff. Exactly, yeah. and so this this has happened a few times, and a big one actually happened in um, India. I think it was about ten years ago, um, up kind of in the the you know foothills of the, the Benton Plateau. Actually, sorry, Nepal, I think it was, and um, yeah, this river jumped course over the course of a couple of days and and basically wiped out a couple of towns and killed wow. a whole lot of people. It was really not very good. But why does it happen? Well, there's been a few hypotheses over the years, but there's been a public a study published this week from uh, researchers at uh, the University of Can- uh, California, Santa Barbara, I think it was, um, who've looked into this and who've kind of for the first time really given a beautiful synthesis that really backs up a lot of the hypotheses that have kind of been floating around for ages that people have used case studies to support but never seen it in a very holistic way. So basically what they think... Uh, happens is this is basically all due to sediment transport. So this is erosion moving stuff in mm-hmm. the river from one place to another, to another. Yep. right? So think about a delta, a river delta, for yep. example. So river deltas um, kind of fan out, they, mm-hmm. they move sediment and they, they have these beautiful what we call alluvial fans and they dump sediment in one spot. All of a sudden, you know, why do rivers move? They fall downhill effectively, Mm, right? They're going to go to the path of least resistance, right? But you're dumping a whole heap of sediment, it's like you're building up that hill, right? Right. And so the river slows down and all of a sudden, hang on. There's a bit of path. There's a path of least resistance, better place somewhere else, right? So that's one way that uh, these things move. They can move it. So you kind of get these avulsions um, at river deltas. So that's a really common way. And, I mean, if you go down to the beach and you're fiddling around with the sand down at the beach, you know, you pour some sand in and it goes down one way and then one other little wall will collapse and it'll go Same thing, same process. So Just, just, you know, hundreds of kilometres. Well, exactly. But, (laughs) I mean, that's kind of the same process in miniature, right? But what, what... Scientists have thought for a long time is that this typically occurred at the delta mouth or at, at the delta itself or kind of at the alluvial fan point where, you know, you've got a canyon and it goes out from a canyon or a tight valley or something like that. Or in what we call the backwater zone. So that sounds kind of – I feel like that should be in a, a sci-fi movie, yeah. right? The backwater zone. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so the backwater zone is basically the zone where the river starts to slow down because you've got an obstacle in the way. That might be the mouth of the river. That might be something else. But it's, you know, you might get um, the – you know, where it meets the ocean, it kind of pushes back up into the river. Yeah. And so you get the water slowing down significantly. You get a lot of erosion or sediment deposition there and it can cause these avulsions. But what they've also found in this new study, where basically what they did was they checked out satellite data for 30 years. Okay. A guy sat there, made movies of all these rivers jumping and moving around to, to classify whether these avulsions happened, and they found about 300 of them. 
wow. around the world. But what they found was that in some areas in kind of tropical locations, desert locations, these avulsions can actually happen a long way upriver as well, yeah. which they weren't expecting mm. because, you know, you want to understand these processes because of the flooding situation I talked yeah. about earlier. And so what they found in those situations, what they think is happening, they think the physics is that a whole heap of sediment is being moved. So if you're in a, if you're in a, a desert environment, for example, it's sand that's easily moved. If you're in a tropical environment, there's just some sort of soil or, or whatever it is that's very easily moved and a lot of it, so high sediment load. And so they think this allows kind of natural levees and embankments and things to build up and up and up. Yeah. And all of a sudden you have a little bit of, you know, erosion in the side of that natural levee, a weakness and it's built up. You got a new, you know, breaks through, you got a new path somewhere else and the river completely changes its course. That's cool stuff. Yeah, it is cool stuff. So so this study's really kind of brought together a whole heap of knowledge around um, what we call the geomorphology of rivers. Um, and it's been super interesting because it's really um, both validated a whole bunch of hypotheses that were out there but also found some new situations that this happens in. And one of, the, one of the reasons they're interested in this kind of high sediment load situation that kind of builds and then erodes levees is because high sediment loads often happen in deforested areas. Right. Right? Yeah. So yep. when you start to chop down Run trees off. and yeah. all of a sudden you have, um, you know, root systems. Yeah, gone. root systems yep. that aren't holding that stuff anymore. That can happen. Kaboom. So, yeah. So, mm. so this is, that's why it's really important for that reason. But, you know, this is what happens when, when scientists like to sit in rooms and watch pictures for hours and hours. And it's, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> it's, it's that kind it's of tedious work. work, but it brings amazing results. We so, need more robots. Is, yeah, we do need, well, I think they did use some <laughs> yeah, machine learning some for machine this, learning, but, sure. but uh, to, to make sure that they, they were seeing what they were seeing. So. Pop quiz for you. Yeah. Unrelated. Yeah. Do you know what the oxygen content of our atmosphere is at the moment? Uh, 21%-ish. Bingo. Jeez, I'm impressed. Well, funny that because, you know, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, <laughs> I'm a climate scientist. You're a climate scientist. <laughs> <laughs> but, but still, that's pretty good. You're ripped it out. A lot of people listening may not be aware that the oxygen levels of the atmosphere are 21%. question is, you know, what was it like 400 odd million year, years ago and how do we work that out? Well, there's a, there's a range of ways we can work that out. You know, there's things like, you know, we in various times we can use ice cores, we can use various other proxies and estimations for that. And, you know, one of them is looking, just modelling, actually, modelling, you know, changes to mountains, changes to, you know, all the sorts of stuff that's in the in the dirt and the soil and the amount of oxygen that gives out. And there's all sorts of ways in which we can model that. And, in fact, if you were to think about um, the oxygen le levels just over 400 million years ago, there's estimates as low as 10%. Um, some people think it might be as high as 30%, you know. But there's an interesting new piece of work that's um, been done recently where, one of the other things I hadn't thought about was when were the first wildfires? Like mm. when, when did the earth start seeing wildfires mm -hmm. or, you know, forest fires, mm. bushfires, mm. whatever you want to call them? And the real answer to that, I think, is when plants started growing on the ground. Yep. Um, so, you know, as soon as started, stuff came out of the ocean yep. and started growing on the ground, over time there was the possibility, happens, lightning strike, ba-boom, you've got yourself a fire. Need stuff to burn, right? Now, what that does, of course, over time is it allows you to – go around, look for some bits of old charcoal from these wildfires and say, okay, here's some charcoal. How much oxygen was this particular thing burnt in? And you can back that out quite readily. And what this team found was that, in fact, um, this was a team uh, in Waterville, Maine, from a group of 
paleobotanists. I love that term, yeah. paleobotanists. You've got you know, Ian Glasspool and Robert Gastaldo were looking at this, and they found that actually around 430 million years ago when they estimate that's the first wildfire they've found so far, the earliest one, mm-hmm. um, earlier than about by about 10 million years than the one before that, so, you know, pushing, pushing the Geological the envelope, time, that's a drop in the ocean. Drop though, in the ocean. <laughs> was about the same as it is today, 21% yeah, oxygen, right. which is really, really cool. Now, that sort of throws a bit of a, a whack against some of these models, which, are, of course, are not that accurate and, you know, they, they do their best. But, you know, I think um, this gives you a far more specific sort of measure of, of a piece of material that was actually burnt in that atmosphere. Mm. And I think that's really cool to be able to find that. So, that is really cool. So yeah. do they think that, like, you know, in those higher oxygen levels, there'd be more wildfires because, you know, oxygen helps fire? Well, I think it, 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 it might be that um, you know they, they burn at different temperatures and, yeah. and you get different products. Yeah. Um, but you know, twenty one percent oxygen is yeah, more than pretty, enough. Oh yes, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I think, uh, and I guess it depends on you know what the moisture levels were as well, because yeah, that's yeah, really yeah. what determines yeah. you know how many fires we get is yes. you know, how much moisture we got. So that was interesting. Now, before we go, I wanted to talk about uh, women. Mm. Some stuff's going on now. I I originally was bringing in a story today to talk to you about, which was on how um, just produced in Nature this week, just published in Nature this week, that looked at 129,000 researchers across the United States and was tracking, you know, what the chances of a researcher being an author on a paper or an invention were. And for the most part, if you're a man, you've got about 21% chance. And if you're a woman, believe it or not, 12%. Doesn't surprise me. You know, drop the microphone there. Like, yeah. And and then, of course, your chance of being cited later mm. are lower too. So kind of double whack in the head. But when I was thinking about this and then I thought, okay, relatively minor, you know, huge, but relatively minor compared to what's just happened in the US with regards to abortion laws. And I'm not going to say a lot about this because I'm a male and I have no idea what it would be like for someone to tell me what I can and cannot do with my body. It seems... Like it would seem like such a. I don't even know how to describe that. That would I would want to fight that with everything I was that someone yeah. would have control over. That. I mean, I mean, what's your impression of what's just happened? Oh, look, I won't lie. It's been a very depressing weekend for me. Uh, I I found out very early on Saturday morning, and um, you know, I mean, this is kind of wide-reaching implications, right? You mm. know, abortion is healthcare. There is no yep. getting around that. Yeah. Right. So this is ultimately denying women. Right to healthcare, mm. um, which makes me very angry, yeah. <laughs> and especially people with low resource. That's right, I think exactly, that's where it hits and that's hardest. where the focus is, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, people who are rich enough can afford to go elsewhere, elsewhere yeah. right? Um, this is really this is really targeted at um, you know the lower socioeconomic groups. Mm. But I mean, the thing is, it's this is not unrelated to what you were just talking about with the the you know women only twelve percent. Of, and I mean, that's just one example in science, but let's talk about the whole workforce, right? Mm. You know, having a child uh, requires, as a lot of us know, significant sacrifice, yep. um, you know, and so in that sense, you know, full participation in the workforce and full participation in, in the economy and things like that often is not possible particularly if you're from one of those lower socioeconomic groups you know yeah so it's not unrelated and it's um yeah it's 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 pretty shocking decision um it's yeah Mm. <laughs> so i was sure i was hoping today and, and she's not well because unfortunately it's her birthday mm. um but you know gracie who is Happy normally birthday. on our show um gracie's in texas yeah 
you know, yeah. ground zero. In yeah. A way. yeah. Um, and, you know, I spoke to her briefly over the, the last couple of days and, yeah. you know, obviously very disturbed by, by this outcome because it does change the way in which uh, many women will be able to get the healthcare they need mm. and the support they need. And I think, as, as I say, I come back to the fact that, you know, I, I have no idea what this is like. Mm. I really don't. Mm. Um, no one's ever told me what I can and cannot do with my body. Mm. And I think that's something that I will, as a male, I will probably never experience in the way that women are experiencing it in the US. And that's that just seems extraordinarily awful. Yeah. So, yeah. It is extraordinarily awful. So there we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> not, yeah, not happy. I think, you know, any, no. any of these things where, um, you know, to be fair, views that are a millennia out of date start to impose changes to people's life circumstances for me are really problematic. And yeah. I, I like that. Yeah, well, it's really interesting too because I know the um, – it's diverging a little bit, but I know the opinion was really talking about how, you know, there has to be a long-running precedent mm. to, to make sure in the American – um, American hmm. life to make sure that these things, you know, but that kind of means that doesn't that mean you're always stuck in the 1700s? If yeah. that's if that's the, if that's <laughs> yeah. the marker, yeah. you know, if if something has to be a long running yeah um, staple in American society in order for it to be accepted by the Supreme Court, surely we're still yeah. living in you know Puritan. United States back uh, in seventeen sixty, whatever it was. It's very problematic. And look, and Australia is not immune from um, no. many of these issues. I mean, we've come a, a long way in a short time, I think, and access here is a lot better. Mm. But there are many elements of women accessing healthcare that are severely problematic. Still, um, pain is a great example of that, and how much women are believed. Um, I've had many situations where, when I've been with with someone in my family, and I've been there as well, they've had a different response than they would if I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. A lot of ingrained biases Shouldn't happen. Everywhere. Shouldn't happen. So there's a lot of work to do, a lot of work ahead of us. Sorry to end on, <laughs> on that note, folks. Um, we've had a great show with the help of some amazing guests today um, from Flinders University and Monash University, um, talking about everything from the eye, Ebola, robotics, and whether we end up corticosteroids and options those. So thank you so much to all those guests. Ailey, great to have you in the studio. So great to be here, Dr. Shane. We'll see you with more science next week. Have a great week, and uh, thanks for listening to Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. <laughs>